It's Matthew 13, 1 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes, they, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Matthew 13 begins the third of five major blocks of Jesus' teaching. Uh, we've seen, we've been through two of those, Matthew 5 through 7, and Matthew 10. Now we come into Matthew 13, which might be maybe the best known of them. Uh, it's perhaps one of the chapters we're most familiar with, because it contains many of Jesus' parables. It's in this chapter before us that we hear repeatedly, the kingdom of heaven is like. We hear here stories of seeds and soils, of weeds and wheat, of the diminutive mustard seed, the imperceptible leaven, a hidden treasure, a pearl of great price. These are stories about the Christian's home, how it has come, how it is coming. It's interesting that, that here is where Matthew records these things, because in chapter 11 and 12, we saw the kingdom outrightly opposed. We saw it opposed by the religious leaders. And now Jesus is telling us why it's ignored, opposed, and subverted, and also why it still possesses this transformative power. And as we as we consider this and we see this, it's a it's a it's a method of teaching that finds its roots back in the Old Testament. Because when you think about the original prophets, the original prophets were Moses and Elijah would be kind of the mold. 
Those prophets originally ministered to Israel by speaking plainly in didactic, which is teaching speech, or sermons. They spoke clearly. And you think through the stories of, well, how well did the Israelite people, as they followed Moses through the wilderness and he spoke clearly to them, how well did they listen? Did they receive what he said? Or did they have a tendency to grumble about it and to rebel? We see something similar with Elijah. By and large, we could say that the people refused to hear. God continued to provide for them and protect them, bring them into the promised land, but the people refused to hear. So later we see this development with the prophets, that as they were instructed, according to God's direction, they used a different manner of communication, such as parables, symbolic actions. Parables, sometimes people say they're a, they're a, they're a story that comes out of the world but contains a heavenly truth. It's kind of a nice way to think about it. Symbolic actions is they would, they would perform something, the most uncomfortable of which, if you've come across it, is when Isaiah had to walk naked in front of everyone for three years. It was illustrative of the embarrassment that Israel would go through as they were relocated into exile. But these, these parables and these symbolic actions of these prophets of the Old Testament, they would have one of two effects. Either the effect of further hardening those who were already hardened toward the Lord, and would be ultimately judged. Or the righteous yet complacent individuals who would respond appropriately by obeying the prophet's message. A couple of examples in Ezekiel 24, 1 through 15, it's an example of that one that had the effect of hardening. It describes the image of a boiled lamb regarding God's thorough judgment on Israel and taking her to Babylon. Perhaps the best known parable in the Old Testament is maybe Nathan's parable of the lamb. When he shows up at David's door, it's recorded in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14. This would be an example of an individual responding appropriately because he shows up at David's door in light of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and all the things that went along with that. He shows up and he proclaims this parable of a little lamb that had been taken by the powerful. He proclaimed it before David regarding his sin with Bathsheba and then sent him, when he was sent to him by the Lord. And David's an example of the latter, for we have David's repentance recorded for us when we read Psalm 51, where he records, Against you and you only I have, have I sinned. Later on he says, Create in me a clean heart, that I might not sin against you. Renew a right spirit to me. So we see David's repentance. And so Jesus comes into this, and really we see the continuation and the greatest demonstration of this parabolic teaching. Because Jesus would teach both by the parabolic teaching that we so associate with him. Because some of the things that perhaps when someone says, what's something that Jesus taught? How many of you, it's a parable that comes to mind? Could be, maybe not, but very often those are the first things that come to mind. So Jesus, we see him that same day, Matthew says. He went out of the house. And so what we've been encountering prior to this is him teaching in a house. And he goes and he sits behind, beside the sea. That would be the Sea of Galilee. And he goes and sits by the Sea of Galilee. And it seems that a great crowd gathers around him so great that he ends up sitting out on a boat. And while he sits on the boat, we acknowledge that that is the position of teaching. In that day, they would sit down and they would begin to teach. And as he sits there the natural amplification coming off of the sea and the wind would carry it so this great crowd would hear. And that's his position, and that's where he teaches, and he begins to teach, and he starts to tell this parable. 
Before we get to the parable, we're going to look at the, the why parable part so we can answer that question a little bit because he records it in verse 10 through 17. The disciples come once they've heard this and they ask, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus, he answers that and then he explains the parable. So there's a little of both in this question. And so as, as the disciples come and they ask why he speaks to them in parables, it's interesting that as he speaks to them, he says, to you it's been given. To you it's been given. That implies that someone has done what? This is probably the most obvious thing ever. Someone's giving it to them. They didn't have it themselves. They didn't figure it out themselves. Jesus says, to you it's been given. Well, what's been given? To know the secrets, the mysteries of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven. And then he continues, but to them it has not been given. So there's something that Jesus hints at right here, which we call the sovereignty of God. God has chosen to give this understanding to some and not give it to others. Because the disciples didn't just know. Their understanding was given. And it was given by God. And it's one of those things that we continually, persistently, we struggle with. The sovereignty of God, the, the responsibility of man. And Jesus doesn't ever hold them at odds. It's interesting that he doesn't do that. But it's something we have to recognize. Because the disciples, it wasn't because they were intelligent that they figured this out. And so often we would say, if I just knew more. As though intelligence is the key. But is intelligence the key? A greater degree of intelligence doesn't make one able to understand the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom. If, if, if that wasn't so, then these people that have been objecting to him, they would have got it real quick. They were the best trained, most knowledgeable in the things of God revealed in his word of anyone in that day. We have to remember that the greatest problem that men face is not a lack of information. It's sin and a dead heart. Things that can only be overcome by God. That's why we ask, we pray that we would be given eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and minds to understand, because left to themselves, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand. And so as Jesus speaks to them, he says, to you it's been given to know. This is something we want to rejoice in. For them it hasn't. For the one who has more will be given. They'll have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. But that secret to the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, there's a bit of an allusion back to Daniel in how Jesus says that to them. And if you look back at Daniel chapter 2, we encounter something of these mysteries and this, this wording of mystery. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 through 30, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. So Daniel's saying he doesn't know this because he's so intelligent. What's he telling Nebuchadnezzar? The understanding has been revealed to him, been given to him by God. It's been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, 
more that more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known, may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Nebuchadnezzar couldn't work this out. It's a great story. If you get a chance, read all of Daniel too. It's a great story. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't figure this out. And, and he wasn't convinced that his advisors had his best interests in mind. So he didn't tell him this dream. And so Daniel, God reveals this, this, this dream, what it was, to Daniel and gives him the interpretation to it. He doesn't just give Daniel that same vision. He gives him the interpretation. And Daniel tells this one who's this powerful king, he says, it wasn't in me, it's been revealed to me so that you might know the thoughts of your head. Anybody ever not understood the own thoughts of their head? Anybody ever need help to understand the thoughts of their head? Good news, God in his perfect timing, which might not be the same as yours, can reveal those and will reveal those. But that's Daniel 2, 28-30. Then in verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, after Daniel's told him all about this kingdom that is to come, which includes the story of a rock that's being cut and goes to the feet of this statue and it grows in size. But that rock, it didn't come down as what? Huge. It came down as what? Small. And it kept growing and growing and growing. It gives us an idea. We can hold on to that as we walk through all of Matthew 13 because it gives us an idea of how that kingdom comes. But in 47, after Daniel's explained all of this, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so Jesus says, To you has been given to know the secrets, it says in some translations, the mysteries, it says in other translations, how they, how they translate that word. It's been given for you to know these things. If it's been given to you to know these things, rejoice in that. Because it means that you've been given eyes that see and ears that hear, hearts and minds to understand. Not completely. The only one who ever understands everything all the way through, up and down, side to side, and thoroughly is who? God. But if you start to understand and you understand the things of God, that's a gift of God that he's given. And so he says, it's been given to you. But then he goes on to say, but there's these that they see and they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. And they don't understand. Men that see but don't, who hear but don't, those that will not see shall not see. And we think back to these chapters we've just come through. What have all of these people seen? They've seen works that only God can do. According to the word that they confess, he's doing things that only God could do, making the blind see and the deaf hear, healing the leprous. He teaches with an authority that's unknown among any of the teachers of our day, and yet what do we see them doing? Seeing they don't see, they've seen mighty works. They closed their eyes to them. What else did they do? They said, he only does this by the power of who? Satan. So they saw the great works, but they said, it's not, by, it's not by God's power, it's by Satan's power that he does this. And then they did this crazy thing. They asked him for another sign. He says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. So seeing, they do not see. They'd seen all these things, but they were blind. Hearing, they do not hear. They've heard his teaching, and they've refused it. Though he taught with authority unknown, they've heard his teaching and refused it. They've rejected the works that verify him as a teacher sent from God, which Nicodemus says in John 3, 2. We know, Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. We know that you're a teacher sent from God because no one could do the works that you do unless he was. So they 
It's not see no evil, they see no good. They hear no good. They do not understand. What don't they understand? They don't understand about Jesus, who he is. Matthew's told us from the beginning, he wants us to see him for who he is. He is Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnate God, son of David. So they don't understand about him, who he is, even though his works have been putting it on display and his teaching has been putting it on display. They also don't understand about his kingdom. They don't understand how it will come. Because in their mind, and as they understood the word, they thought it was coming with this huge display, this conquering army with the banners flying and the victory parade coming in, and it's going to smash the Romans and going to set up this geopolitical kingdom that's, that's, that's going to be the end. But that's not how the kingdom's going to come. And as Jesus tells these stories, that becomes clear. He starts telling a story about what? Scattering seed. That seems as anti-giant, ostentatious, impressive display as anything there could be. Because as he teaches, he's telling them how it'll come. It's not going to come with ostentatious display. And so the parables, in the parables, they're receiving what they deserve. They don't understand. And as they don't understand, they continue to reject more and they become harder. They're so much like Pharaoh. The testimonies before him and yet rejection continues to go. And so hearts are hardened. And then Jesus, he, he, he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. You'll indeed hear, but never understand. You'll indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes, or with their ears, they can barely hear. With their eyes, they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. It's in this wonderful chapter where Isaiah has this wonderful vision of God on his throne. He's declared to be holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah, arguably the most righteous man in all of Israel, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, but he's brought, he's brought near. His lips are cleansed. And God says, who shall I send? And Isaiah's response is, send me. And God says, I'm going to send you. And here's what you're going to say. Isaiah was sent as a prophet of judgment. When you read the book of Isaiah, you get past the call of Isaiah. The first five chapters are the indictment of Israel. And then in chapter 6, there's the call of Isaiah. And then in verses or in chapter 7, 8, and 9, he's given these, wonder, these signs that there will be a child that's born. And those things are rejected. Not understood, but Isaiah is sent as this prophet of judgment. God says, I'm going to send you to say to the people, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing but don't perceive. Make the heart of his people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah's response is what our response would be. This is heartbreaking because he loves these people and he's been sent to them and he says, how long, O Lord? And God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He's talking about the promised land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Here, the one speaking these stories, this one, this one that stands in that culmination of that 
prophetic office of Isaiah, here's the seed. And he says, this is how the kingdom's going to come. But Isaiah, it's interesting, as he's sent, he's sent as a prophet of judgment. He's also sent as a prophet of comfort and consolation. If you read through the first half of Isaiah and you're starting to feel down, read the second half. Read Isaiah 40 through 66. There's a reason Isaiah is called by some the fifth gospel. Because there's such wonderful news of comfort and consolation. But here in this moment, at this time, it's it's a reference to that judgmental part of judgment coming. When we look at Isaiah's time, it shouldn't come as a surprise that they rejected God's message of judgment. Because they had been. They'd been warned by prophets. But it's interesting that as they reject the first half of Isaiah, what do they also not understand by the time of Jesus' day? That comfort would come, that consolation was coming. So they rejected, they, they, they rejected that message of judgment. So they also, by and large, rejected God's message of comfort. They didn't like Isaiah's hard words. And so when Isaiah had words of comfort, they also misunderstood and didn't understand them. Isaiah's hard words, though, we have to recognize are still good words. But the people of his day, much like many today, refuse to accept that something which is hard can be good. And just as an illustration, when you read that first half of Isaiah, there's a whole, there, no one gets out of there comfortably. But then the, the page turns at Isaiah 40, and it's only after all of that where Isaiah's promised a deliverer to come. He's walked through all of this different judgment that's going to happen. But then he turns in Isaiah 43, 2. It's where we, in that comfort part. It's only through passing through that. He gets to this point where he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. The comfort only comes through that theology of what Martin Luther would call the theology of the cross. The problem we have is a lot of times we want the glory without what? Without the cross. But even in the outline of Isaiah and even in the outline of the gospel, what has to take place for the glory to come? The cross has to take place by God's design, by God's plan. And there will be those that hear and those that don't hear and the ones that reject it, they grow harder. If you refuse the theology of the cross, you will refuse the theology of glory. But he says, I speak to them in parables. He quotes Isaiah. And then he comes to that wonderful change of direction, but... What does that indicate to them? You are not among their number, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Blessed eyes and ears, they're received like every good and perfect gift. That's what Jesus is telling them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Remember, Jesus, what what have we seen him do so far in Matthew? We've met blind men that he's made what? See. We've met deaf men that he's made hear. We've met a dead girl that he made alive. 
And then we want to change the rules. But we can't change the rules because just as much as the blind person couldn't make his own eyes see, the deaf person couldn't make his own ears hear, and the dead girl couldn't revive her own heart, who has to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand? It can only be something that God can do. This is something only God can do, and it's no different when we move from the physical to the spiritual arena. So it is with eyes and ears that see and hear spiritual truth, as well as a mind and heart that understands. They're new. They're opened. And they understand that is indicative of blessing because he wants you to see and to hear and to understand. And then he says, there's many prophets and righteous people. Who are these? If you are in Christ, they're your older brothers and sisters. What have they done? They longed to see what you see. This isn't just some, you know, it'd be really nice to see what God's talking about here. Wouldn't it be? No, they longed to see it. They're like, let it be in this day. It wasn't some feeble desire. These are the ones that are written of when we get to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, as we call, go through this gallery of faith, as some call it, it says, these all died in faith. And he's talking about Old Testament people. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So they didn't receive the fullness of it, but they've seen them and they greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then there's some more descriptions of those. And it comes to the end in 39 and 40. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. One body, eyes that see, ears that hear, longing. If you're in Christ, are you longing for the day of His return? Or are you longing for the day in which you are brought into His presence? And not just the selfish part, but are you longing for others to see? what they so far have not seen, to hear what they so far have not heard, and to understand what they haven't understood. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And we long for that longing, but content to submit to and allow God's sovereign plan to unfold as God ordained. That's what they're longing for. So Jesus says, here's why I speak by the parables. Because there are those who are going to sing, blessed are their eyes, blessed are their ears. But there's going to be those that have rejected it and they're going to continue to reject it and it's going to get harder. Because when we reject truth the first time, what does it become easier to do every time after that? It gets easier and easier and easier to push the truth away. That doesn't mean that we stop proclaiming truth. We continue to proclaim truth because we know that at any moment, God could break through no matter how thick a callus maybe has been built up. We rejoice that it's in his power to do that. And we confess truth. 
So Jesus explains to them, this is why it's going to bring some, but it's also going to harden others. It's this juxtaposition. There's accountability for it. But as Jesus explains this to them, they realize and they're shown the fact that they're part of this audience, this crowd. But this parable, perhaps the one of the one that we know pretty well, it's interesting because the main character in this parable, or the main characters in this parable, other than the sower, it's not people. I mean, they are people, it points to people, but it's soil. It's these different soils, four different soils. And we look at this and we, we think, what's this guy doing? Well, he's broadcast sowing. That's how they farmed. He would go out and he would scatter his seed and then they'd plow. And we don't get that. But that's how farming took place. He would go out, broadcast seed all over, and then they would plow and you would discover where some of this would come up, some would come quickly, and some just like the parable unfolds. Some would be snatched away by the birds. So it's interesting that that hard path would probably be the path that the sower is walking on, isn't it? Exposure to the word when we refuse it can harden, can it? It's one of those things that we need to recognize. But he goes out and he scatters these, and then they'd come and plow. And we have these four soils. The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So four soils. There's this hard path along the path. And when we look at this and Jesus starts to explain it, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so they've really heard it. They've heard it in its truth and its fullness, fullness explained, proclaimed. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what's sown along the path. Well, what is that? Well, it's outright rejection of the word of God. Not going to hear it. Not going to listen to it. I don't believe it. It's not true. Just outright rejection. Those who say, you can talk to me about anything, just don't bring that Jesus stuff. Hard path can be our natural resistance to God and fallen nature. Because when we recognize the truth of who we are left to ourselves, we were all here at some point. Something changed. So there's that natural resistance. But the hard path, maybe they've heard the word and it grows harder because they continue to reject it. Or it bounces off. You know, and this is this is pretty pretty clear right here that I mean these would be unbelievers. I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I'm not gonna believe it. That's the easiest one. <laughs> and then there's the shallow soil. The shallow soil, the rocky soil. This is what was sown on rocky ground. It's the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. When? Immediately. That's one of Mark's favorite words. But Matthew uses, uses it here. Immediately. There's no, there's no waffling on this. Should I stay? Should I go? Gone. Immediately. So, I mean, when we look at this, I mean, this is where it gets a little more difficult, and there's, there's some, some people that disagree here. But, I mean, it seems that this is received with joy, but it doesn't endure. That's, that's plain. Okay? seems like it's received with joy, but it doesn't endure. And why doesn't it endure? Persecution is specifically mentioned. 
So what's taking place here? I mean, sometimes people hear the sometimes people hear the gospel, don't they? And go, that really is good news. Or they see a church that really cares for people. And and I want to be a part of that. Why do you want to be a part of it? Well, because they take care of each other and there's good things that go on there. Is that a confession of faith in Christ, though? I mean, they would look to be a part of the body. And this is this is this sounds like this sounds good. I mean, the benefit outweighs the loss, I think. But then the heat starts to rise. And so, and again, we don't know the heart. This is where it gets tricky, right? I think the key is, what does Jesus say when we get to the end of this about fruit? How much fruit came from the hard path? None. What about this shallow soil? It's no fruit. Well, it's on a rocky ground, this one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Was it a superficial surface profession of faith? Maybe. But the heat comes up. What we have to understand is that a profession of faith is not the same thing as possession of faith. We have to recognize that. Because signing a card or raising a hand or going forward, it's not that they're bad, they're not bad things. But that doesn't mean you're saved. Profession's not the same as possession. But again, we can't get into necessarily, we, we know that God's the only one who knows the heart, and that's why we look at what does Jesus say about the fruit here. Because what we can say without a shadow of a doubt is that fruitlessness is never rewarded in Scripture. That's been clear already in Matthew. This shallow soil, perhaps is it a faith that was linked to something other than Christ? Maybe. But a faith in something other than Christ is no faith at all. And again, this, is, this, is, this can be hard because this can be some of the people that we know, that we care immensely about. And again, we don't know the heart, but when it comes down to it, when Jesus speaks here, says that this one, you go... We, as he proclaims the parable, he tells us they sprang up quickly. They had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they have no root, they withered away. And there's no mention of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness, again, is never rewarded. Fruitlessness is never rewarded in Scripture. Matthew 3.10, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Why do we continue to proclaim the gospel even within the walls of the church? Because the gospel has to be heard because the odds are, even among us, there are those who haven't truly believed. And again, that's not saying they went, hmm, I wonder who it is. No, that's just taking God at his word. It's our desire and it's our hope that that wouldn't be the case for anyone that's here. We want to bear fruit. Fruitfulness is indicative of the reality of something that's taken place, that the Spirit has worked that the Spirit is working. And so the shallow soil comes up quickly. It's got a good display. But the end is unfruitfulness. It's falling away. When the thorny soil, 
The thorny soil, it comes in, they hear the word, and it seems to hang in for a while. But then what does he say? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Again, that unfruitfulness is mentioned. And, and the things he mentions specifically seems that he hears with interest, but also simultaneously indulges competing interests as well. Those competing interests that Jesus identifies are the cares of this world. And when we look for earlier in Matthew, we see Jesus has already addressed those cares of the world, hasn't he? And he warns about them, right? In Matthew 6, 25 through 34, he talks about, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And he continues to teach them, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's talking about the anxiety of those things that, that, that are the cares of the world. He mentioned them in Matthew 10, 37 as well. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, he's not talking, these aren't bad things. But when they become the primary things, the first things, the most important things, they lead astray the cares of the world. But he also mentions the deceitfulness of riches. And he's mentioned those in Matthew chapter 6 as well. In Matthew 6, 24, he's talking about laying up treasures in heaven. But he says, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Money makes promises that it can't bear up. There's nothing wrong with money, but when we pursue it first, we make it primary. It'll lead us down all sorts of paths that we don't want to go down and perhaps aren't discovered till too late. First Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then in, in verse 17, he doesn't leave it there. He revisits this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, listen to this, the uncertainty of riches. The uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you hear the contrast? Uncertainty of riches, certainty of God that he provides us, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Jesus here in this one, he's, he's, he's making a warning once again. You hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And again, fruitlessness. It's never rewarded in Scripture. I mean, this is our concern would be here because it seems like you've heard, but there's something... Missing. Jesus, later on in Matthew, he's going to walk by a tree on his way into Jerusalem. It's a fig tree. And some people get really hot and bothered about this. How could Jesus curse this nice little fig tree? All it was doing was being a fig tree and doing its thing. No, it wasn't. 
There's a particular type of fig tree that is supposed to bear figs at that time of year, and it was not. And when Jesus walks up to it making a display, but with no fruit, he curses it. And immediately it what? It withers. We look at this shallow and this thorny soil, and perhaps, perhaps, the shallow soil, it, it's tested by persecution. Because that's specifically mentioned. And it withers and is unfruitful. And this third soil, the thorny soil, what would its test perhaps be? Prosperity. The things of this world. The deceitfulness of, deceitfulness of riches. And it what? It's fruitless. So we've got three of these four that end with fruitlessness. We don't ever want to see fruitlessness. But then he gets to the fourth one, the good. And what did the good soil do? It received the seed as well, but what took place? It was sown on good soil. It's the one who hears the word and understands it. Blessed are your eyes, for they see your ears, for they hear. You understand. Blessed, again, received and brings forth a harvest. In this day and age, a tenfold harvest would have been eye-opening. A parable always includes a little twist that kind of blows your hair back a little bit or makes you go, hmm. Tenfold would be like, man, it's a bumper crop year. What does Jesus say about this seed and this soil? He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case 100-fold, another 60, and another 30. Do you hear the rejoicing? There's fruit. And it's not just a little bit. It's, it's abundant. It's received and it brings forward a, forth a harvest. 30, 60, 100-fold harvest would be unexpected. It would be a twist that far exceeds any expectation. But here's the thing with it. Did you notice the, the, the seed that fell on the hard path? It was snatched away. The seed that fell in the shallow soil, it sprang up quickly. And it seems that the stuff that was sown in the thorns, it sprang, it came up with those thorns, but with none of them, it's a, none of them implied patience of time. Because in that shallow soil, the, the sower would have gone by and said, Oh, look, the crop's already coming but no fruit would come. And the soil that was good, it's been a week. It's been a couple of weeks. It's been three weeks. And then, oh, there's something, there's something there. He continued to check on it. It's starting to grow. It didn't look like anything was going to happen. And yet he does what? Over here, you've got stuff starting to come up, but there's still no fruit here. This is starting to come up, and it's tiny, but it's growing. And it continues to grow. And he continues to care for it. That harvest takes time. Patience is implied. Something that's not present in the previous three souls, or soils. Will we be content? And there's a question implied there. Will we be content to wait for God to accomplish everything he has planned in his time? Because the seed that's scattered on all of them is the same. But it's the good soil that it takes root and bears fruit. 
The harvest comes, but you don't know which seed at that point. I think this is really interesting about this parable. The harvest comes, but you don't know which seed at that point which the harvest comes is the hundredfold, the sixtyfold, or the thirtyfold, do you? Do you walk through that little part and go, oh, this seed right here, it, it was a hundredfold. You don't know that by the time the crop shows up. Here's another question. Do you even care? Or are you overwhelmed with joy that there's this harvest that's come? Are you overwhelmed with gratefulness that it heard and it saw and it understood? And here comes this bumper crop. Are you thankful? Are you thankful? Because here comes again this harvest. And we hear this, and sometimes when we hear this, it can, it can cause some discomfort. It can cause some these things like this. What here? I, I want you to recognize. I want you to understand that if you're in Christ. If you have confessed your faith in Him and you are in Christ, you are good soil. Now before you mount your high horse, recognize that you weren't that the whole time. Good soil does not equal good persons. Good soil equals one who has been born again by the Spirit and has received what the Father has given, seen it, heard it, understood it. Rejoice that the Spirit regenerated you because you weren't good soil to start with. Maybe you were that hard path that boom, 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 boom. It bounced off a hundred times and a hundred and one. He changed it. Maybe you were that rocky soil that, man, it sprung up fast and then something came up and, and, then, and then the soil changed. I don't know how God works. The farmer doesn't even know how the seed works in that regard. He just looks out. All of a sudden, look, there's a plant. Oh, and there's fruit on it. Praise God. That weedy soil, thorny soil that was seeking to choke it out, perhaps that was you. And God said, I'm going I'm to do a little work here. And the soil's changed. Rejoice that the Spirit regenerated you. Because you weren't good soil to start with if you're in Christ. In Him we have, we, we, we have also been made into seed scatterers and sowers. That's part of the wonder of what He's done in, in, in changing us, in transforming us. But notice in this parable as well, what is emphasized? And there are these two things on the side of your head. Here. Hear. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that which was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. What was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. And the one who was sown on good soil, it's the one who hears the word. I'm not sure if I'm hearing. Then all you have to do is ask. Give me ears to hear. Cry out to him. I don't know if I've heard or I think I've heard, but I don't want to be deceived. Why do we pray? 
consistently, not all the time, but consistently before we come to this part of our service, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand because on our own, we don't have them. And unless he gives eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, we won't. Keep giving me eyes that see. Keep giving me ears that hear. Keep giving us hearts and minds that understand. Why? So that we would be fruitful for you. Because what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's our greatest desire? That I bear fruit for you. Not for you, for you. Ask for ears to hear. Ask for wisdom. And recognize and and laugh with the sense of humor that there is in this. The kingdom comes with seed sowing. Seed sowing. How unexpected is that? I mean, that's the kingdom of heaven? Comes with sin. This is mind-blowing. By referring to the phrase kingdom of heaven... Matthew argues that the end-time kingdom has begun its descent and has initially broken into the earthly sphere. That's a wonder. When Jesus adds that he's the sower, that comes up in a later parable. In verse 37, we see another layer of meaning in this parable. If Jesus is the sower, he sows the word every time he speaks. The parable also reveals how the kingdom works. It enters the world like a seed in hidden form. Without power or compulsion, you will believe in me. All the seeds scattered. And what's in that seed? When you see an acorn, what do you know is in that acorn? I got an oak tree. No, you ain't. You got an an acorn. Yeah, but give it time. Give it time. And you plant that, right? I mean, that's, that's what's taking place. The kingdom is genuinely present. It comes as a seed, not as a mighty army. We read later on about the mighty army that comes. But it starts coming as a seed. It's genuinely present, but not fully present. Many stumble over this. If the kingdom has arrived, why does it seem so weak? Why does it struggle for respect and for converts and for resources? Jesus doesn't explain why. He does not explain why. But he says that it must be for a time. Let no one despair. I mean, the promise we have is that the word, which is the seed, will not return to God empty. It will accomplish that from which it's sent forth. Jesus promises that the seed will yet gain a great harvest. Remember what he said earlier? The harvest is plentiful, but what? The workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. The parables invite listeners to consider how they should respond to Jesus, which implies the question, how have you responded to Jesus? If you're in Christ, as we've already said, you're the good soil. You rejoice that the Spirit has made you good soil. In Him, it's not just that there's growth and fruit bearing. In Him, we're also now seed scatterers and sowers imitating the chief sower. For he's brought us into his work to share in it. And just like him, it's not ours to examine the sky. 
Uh, it doesn't look like the best at times. It's getting a little cloudy. It's not ours to examine the sky and determine the best time to broadcast the seed we've been given. We're supposed to do what? Broadcast it. Scatter it. It's not supposed to look through the bag. Oh, that looks like a 100-folder. That looks like a 60-folder. Oh, you scatter that seed all over. And you trust that the Lord of the harvest will bring the harvest. It's not ours to examine the sky and determine the best time. It's very much like Ecclesiastes 11. Ecclesiastes 11, 4 through 6 says, He who observes the wind will not sow. If you look around at the times we live in, you go, Oh, it looks like this ain't the best of times. Might not be. That's not what you, We're not supposed to observe the wind and not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. No sowing, what? No reaping. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Jesus kind of echoes this to Nicodemus when he talks about it, doesn't he? In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or, or, whether both alike will be good. Because what is the Lord, what is your Father's will? That none would perish. So scatter the seed. Even on that land that's like, that land doesn't look so good. Scatter the seed. That's what I called you to do. Remember, Jesus sowed. As Jesus sowed, what did the clouds do? What did the clouds do? These are proverbial clouds. We're speaking symbolism here. As Jesus scattered the seed, what did the clouds do? They gathered. They gathered throughout all of his life. We see the gathering taking place in 11 and 12. The environment grew continually more hostile. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that as we are faithful to sow as well, that the environment would similarly react. We follow him in so many ways. And he's called us to not be surprised. So let us sow. And perhaps if you don't understand, the question is, do you want to understand? And if that's, the, if, that, if that's the position you find yourself in, here's the wonderful promise that you have. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give. And if you desire that wisdom, if you desire that understanding to know those things of God and to glorify him, the God who gives generously any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. It will come from the one who gives every good and perfect gift. Ask for the wisdom and the understanding. Ask for what is promised in Proverbs 8. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. One hundredfold, sixtyfold, fold. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Ask for the wisdom. 
ask that he would give understanding. And if you've received that wisdom, you've received that understanding, if you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand, rejoice every day and ask that he would continue to provide. Because he will. For he's good. And he's conforming you in Christ evermore to the image of his Son. And bear fruit for him.